It is a blessing to be back with you today. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We've come to the final part, really, of a single sermon that has spanned, I don't know, it seems like three or four years now. Well, it spanned several weeks. I've been gone off and on for the last several weeks, and it's a sort of a three-part sermon. We're at that final part of that sermon. We have learned that inside a local church, we are to love one another and treat one another as children. And this final part, this final, really the second half of Matthew chapter 18 is all about rescuing one another. What happens when someone inside the local church sins, inside the church membership? And we know this is talking about the church because Jesus says, or the final step, if a person is not repentant, is to remove them from the church, the local congregation. So a local congregation is committed to one another, We have made covenant with one another. We have sworn, as it were, a vow to one another to to follow Christ and to be people who love Jesus and encourage one another to good works. But what happens when one of us, a person inside the local church who has in fact made that commitment, what happens when someone stops living by that covenant that they have sworn? What do we do? Well, we don't just say, well, I guess there goes that person. No, we rescue that person. And Jesus gives us a number of steps, and we've gone through all of those steps, save the very last one or the very last part of that effort of rescuing one another. So let me read to you the entire section beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 18, and I'll read to the end of the chapter, but pay special attention to verse 21 and following. That's what we're going to look at very carefully this morning. Verse 15 of... Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And Peter came and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made." The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
His master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God. Probably the two most significant words that my grandmother uttered in her last hours on this earth were, I forgive. Her former husband, my grandfather, had abandoned and divorced her some years before in pursuit of a secretary that was 25 years his junior. This so emotionally and mentally and spiritually traumatized my grandmother, to whom he'd been married for some 40 or 50 years, that it had a physical effect on her. And doctors have demonstrated this, that sometimes something happening of this level of drama can actually cause people to have a level of dementia and perhaps even Alzheimer's. My grandfather, probably out of shame when my grandmother was there dying of Alzheimer's, he went to her hospital bedside. At that point, my grandmother could hardly say anything, and when she woke up to say something, it was usually incognizant, didn't really mean anything, or didn't really, wasn't really understandable. But when my granddad came to her side, she awoke, she looked him straight in the eyes and spoke these words, I forgive. Soon she slipped away and met her Savior. You know, it's very easy in our day to look at all the sin that's going on around us in this world and be very critical and looking at all the decay of this earth and be very frustrated and critical of what's going on. What's wrong often is declared right. What's viable and, vile and damnable is celebrated and commendable. Many of these sins are not only protected legal, legally, but now they're foist upon us as though we have to celebrate them as well. These sins are easy to spot. A plain reading of the text will well, uh, the Bible will tell us about uh, the abominable nature of homosexuality and, and adultery and uh, all kinds of godlessness. We read the Bible and we learn about theft and murder and all these things. These are blatant sins, and it's very easy for us as Christians to, to see these sins and point these sins out in the world. But there is a sin that's far more subtle and far more common among Christians, perhaps, than all these other sins. It is a sin of bitterness. Bitterness, simply put, is the unwillingness to forgive. It's the harboring of spite and malice towards someone who has wronged you. And this is such a, a real temptation that several times in His training of the disciples, Jesus comes back to this idea of anger and bitterness and the necessity to forgive other people. The desire of Jesus is that we would live peacefully with others and be people who are indeed peacemakers. What does he say at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the whom? The peacemakers. He taught his men how to pray. In that prayer, if you remember, way back in Matthew 6, there is one single activity of ours in that prayer. May we forgive others who've sinned against us. Bitterness is such an imminent temptation. Jesus said to pray for and love whom? Our enemies. 
He said if we're angry with our brother or sister, we, we will eventually answer to God for that anger if we've withheld forgiveness. Neither will your father forgive your trespasses, he says after the prayer there. The writer of Proverbs says bitterness rots the bones, and if you don't believe Holy Scripture, just act, ask your doctor, ask your psychologist. Holding on to anger and hatred and unforgiveness destroys you emotionally and even physically. Bitterness, my dad always told me, is like drinking poison and thinking it'll kill the other guy. It's the assumption that since they hurt you, withholding forgiveness is, some, is a way of getting back to them, but indeed that bitterness hurts you and kills you and gets back at you. Bitterness spreads to your whole life, your whole body, your physique, your mind, your mentality, the way you view the world. Bitterness destroys you. And like a pathogen, bitterness spreads not just in your heart and in your life, but it spreads to other people. You give other people, as a bitter person, reasons to be bitter against you. Bitterness spreads and destroys. It affects you. It affects others. It affects your appearance. And more than all of this, bitterness is ultimately a sin against God. It's a sin against God for at least a few reasons. One, God clearly tells us, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Scripture tells us, I heard this earlier read, repay no one evil for evil. Holding on to a grudge, being bitter toward people is simply a lack of obedience in the very first place. In the very first idea, we, we get this idea that bitterness is Holding a grudge is just wrong. God tells us not to do this. Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone. So to sentence and judge people in our own hearts, to hold a grudge is, first of all, a sin against God in that it is blatant disobedience. Worse than that, second, it's a lack of trust in God. It's doubt that God really knows how to be just. It assumes that God's wrath against sin is somehow insufficient. And you've got to add to it. You have to be higher in your standard of justice than even God because clearly you don't think God has enough justice. If you hold a grudge, for instance, against a lost person, it is a presumption that their punishment in eternal hell is not sufficient. You have to add some justice and punishment to that. If you hold a grudge against a saved person, you're basically holding that Christ bearing the, the perfect wrath of God against their sin is indeed still insufficient. And so you have to punish them a little bit more. Essentially, you believe that your sense of justice is better than God's. Bitterness, grudges, malice, this is a sin against God because it's outright disobedience and because it is doubting the perfect, holy justice of God. So you get at a third idea of why it's a sin against God. It's because it all is rooted in pride. You know better than anyone, even God. And that's what I've noticed. I don't know if you've noticed this, but people who are perpetually bitter and constantly griping about everybody, what you find out is they really think they know everything. They may not say that to you. They may not articulate that with their mouth or even with their mind, but you realize being around them, they really believe they know the best about everything. They're arrogant, they're bitter, and they think they know better than everyone around them. Everyone around them is doing it wrong. They're inherently arrogant. But the sad truth is, through their blind hatred, they're actually becoming more and more stupid themselves. They're miserable people. And so ultimately, even if someone proclaims 
that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, even if a person intellectually affirms the truth of Christ, even if you say, I believe in Jesus, even if you claim to love God and you say that you've repented and had faith, for you to be bitter is decidedly not faith. It's not faith in Christ. It's not faith in His holiness. It's not faith in the justice of God. It's not faith in the cross of Christ. It's not, not faith in what God is going to accomplish both now and in the future. Bitterness, according to Jesus, is a sign that you're not a true believer. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In spite of all that instruction from the Bible, it's hard for us to not be bitter, isn't it? It's a It's a battle. This is so tempting. We're, we're bitter because we're impatient. We, we want to see justice, and we want to see it now. We can't believe that that person got away with a sin against me or those I love. We're bitter because we think withholding forgiveness somehow punishes them. We're bitter, perhaps, one of the most common things you see in television is we're bitter because we think it's our right to be bitter. It's my right, if someone's wronged me, to be bitter against them and to withhold forgiveness from them. Oftentimes, you hear people say, I have the right to be offended. I have the right to be insulted, to hang on to this grudge. But that language and those attitudes are foreign to the biblical standards for believers. We are to yield our rights to others. We are to prefer others. We are never insulted. We forgive one another. But this is a tall task when you've been hurt, isn't it? And so Jesus knows our struggle. He knows our temptation to withhold forgiveness and be bitter. So with this passage, Jesus teaches us to forgive. You need that, don't you? I need that. We need to learn how to forgive. Jesus teaches us to forgive those who've sinned us against us, to live a calm and peaceful life. A life that's focused on joy and blessing and the privilege it is to live and revel in the forgiveness that God has given us in Jesus Christ. To see the blessing it is to offer that same forgiveness to others. Romans chapter 13 verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, Aspire to live a quiet life. And then later it says, Don't grow weary in doing this. Don't grow weary in doing this good. Now, that's the kind of peaceful, forgiving attitude and lifestyle I want, don't you? That's the kind of peaceful and kind lifestyle that Jesus envisions, particularly in a local congregation who's covenanted to, to live peacefully among one another. This willingness and action of forgiveness is this last part that Jesus addressed here in the process of discipline or rescuing other children of God. The placement of this parable here, especially with uh, Peter's question, doesn't seem so much like a step as it seems sort of a, an attitude that should, should paint the whole picture of church discipline, this attitude, this desire to show peace and, and magnanimity and forgiveness and a willingness to, to love. When a brother or sister 
sins? What do we do? And we've walked through this passage already. So let's just go through that passage and we'll come to this final point. Just remember these steps that we've seen so far. The first step, number one, is speak to them alone. He read that in verse 15. The second step, if you'll remember, is to speak with them with others. And you'll remember the idea is not to go to others and speak about them. It is to bring along witnesses to the confrontation. Those people may not even need to know about what you're confronting them about. They're there to just validate and see if the accusation is indeed legitimate and true. So you bring other witnesses with you, much like we studied about what they did in the Old Testament. If they do not listen to two or three witnesses, if these people do indeed say this is a legitimate concern, it's clear you're in sin, and that person does not listen to the two or three others, verse 17, we're to include the church body. Ultimately, that would mean to tell the church body to reach out to this erring brother or sister and help them see the error of their ways and call them back to fellowship. And then finally, step four, if the church sees no repentance, then we are to excommunicate. We put them out of the fellowship out of the covenant group of people inside the local church. Again, this is a progression of actions here, but this last passage about forgiveness seems to be what paints the whole attitude of how we do this. It seems not to be so much of a step in the process, but an attitude that we offer throughout. Jesus didn't tack this on as a step. Rather, Peter asked a question, and it prompted some instruction, further instruction from Jesus. And so Peter asks this question. It's a really good question if you think about it. The idea is, say this person keeps on saying they're repentant, but they keep on failing. How many times, verse 21, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's possible that uh, Peter said seven times. He picked that number because this amount may have been, we're not sure, but some scholars say this, this was more than the amount that was required by the rabbis and tradition at that time. At that time, uh, there's evidence that rabbis would say, you forgive someone three times, and after three times, you don't have to forgive them anymore. Even if they're repentant, you don't do anything to them. You now are no longer responsible to offer forgiveness. So Peter may have thought he was being very generous here. Maybe he picked the number seven because it's more than twice that, and it is a, the number of perfection or wholeness. Jesus responds 77 times, or some translations say 70 times 7, which would be 490 times. Regardless, the meaning is the same. He wasn't giving a specific number. He was saying forgiveness is unending, particularly when a person is repentant and they're constantly coming to you in repentance. Even if they slip up over and over again, you show a willingness to offer forgiveness. There's no limit to forgiveness. As long as that person is trying to repent, you keep forgiving. Now, there is a little asterisk here. Sometimes you find people who are deceptive. They're pretending to be repentant. And God just has to show you that that's false, that repentance is indeed false. But oftentimes, Christians struggle with the same sin over and over again, and we need to respond in forgiveness over and over again. So, today we finish this fifth and final part of how we are to rescue one another as children. Number five, foster the heart of forgiveness. Foster the heart of forgiveness. Well, how do we do this? And we can learn some things from our passage 
right here. What is it to foster the heart of forgiveness? Jesus offers a very familiar parable, the parable of the king or the, the master and the indebted servants. The king had a servant. The first servant that is mentioned there has this remarkable debt. It says there in verse 24, note, the king wanted to settle accounts with servants, a servant who owed him this astronomical amount of 10,000 talents. And what's the, the math on this? Well, a denarii was what a normal worker would earn in a full day's work. And in that day, a talent was equal to 600 denarii. So we're talking about 15 to 20,000 years of labor. To put that in perspective, if you made a very generous salary of $100,000, it'd mean you'd owe a billion or perhaps $2 billion. Impossible debt. It's a debt that you could never pay. I think this is Jesus' point. This is an unpayable debt. There's no possible way this guy could ever pay this debt. This, this man is at a point of, of utter despair because, you see, he... Because he could not pay the debt, the, the king even mentions there, I will enslave you, your family. And this idea of family is not just this first generation, but the next generation, the next generation, until uh, your, your family will be enslaved to my family for many, many years until finally we feel like that that debt has been paid. This servant realizes the desperateness of a situation. Verse 26, he falls on his knees, he implores him, have patience with me. And there in verse 17, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a believer, God has forgiven you a debt, an impossible debt, a debt you could never pay off in a million eternities. He's had mercy on your soul. He's released you from the slavery and the punishment of your sin, the, the penalty that you were bound for. And it's infinitely bigger than what even this servant owes his master. It's an impossible debt. The fact of the matter is, you cannot appreciate the freedom that God has given you until you first understand your indebtedness to God, how terribly you have violated God. It's an impossible debt. It's an unpayable debt. While I was away, I watched Pastor Ryan exposit from Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when you were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This comes right after that description on the debt that we owe. We're dead in the trespasses and sins which we walk. We were children by nature of wrath. We were numbered among the children of disobedience, those who follow after the prince of the power of this air, Satan himself. We owe God an unpayable debt, but God has set us free. What a measurable mercy and grace. He is a king that's forgiven us of this unpayable debt, this internal impossible debt. So the first way, I think, in which we foster forgiveness is to express as best we can that same forgiveness that we have received in our lives. So we should first, A, make forgiveness a way of life. Make forgiveness a way of life. Since we have been forgiven, since we have experienced in dramatic fashion 
forgiveness from this impossible debt by a holy God, we should make forgiving others a way of life. That'll be second nature for us. This is the most obvious lesson as you read this this story. This is the most obvious lesson. I mean, of all people who should know how to forgive, it's this guy, this servant, who's been forgiven everything. This guy ought to really understand the value of forgiveness. The, The audacity and the gall of this guy is astounding that he won't forgive others even though he's experienced genuine forgiveness, impossible forgiveness. God has forgiven our sin, the violation of His holiness. Holiness, shouldn't we then live our lives easily forgiving those who've sinned against us? Now, the debt that this other guy owed him, the first servant, the debt that the second servant owed him was relatively small relative to the debt that he owed the master. It is uh, pretty much nothing. It's, it's very small. However, it's a hundred denarii. So, a hundred denarii is a hundred days of work. That's a lot of, that's a third of your salary, right? Annual salary. This is a pretty significant debt. This is a lot of money. And if you lived very long at all, you know that people can hurt others, and maybe people have hurt you in very significant ways. People have hurt you in ways that have that continue to have an impact on your life. They, they've scarred you for years. They've caused problems in your life that will last until the day you die. It's significant. This 100 denarii was no small debt. However, relative to 10,000 talents, what you owe God, it's nothing. It may be painful. It may be hurtful. It may be harmful. It may make major impact on your life. But compared to what you owed God and that what God forgave you, it's nothing. Shouldn't you then be able to forgive others? who've sinned against you. That's the story. That's the message of the the primary message of this text. Of all people, you ought to be able to forgive if you're a genuine believer. The wicked servant, he never got it. He'd been forgiven so much. He'd been been given this wonderful gift by his master, but he didn't really appreciate it. He did not live as though he was forgiven. The argument Jesus is making here, beginning with the idea of 77 times or 70 times 7, is that forgiveness should be for us a way of living. This is the way in which we operate. We are ready to forgive. We have a grace and peace. We, we are very aware, we are acutely aware of our own sin and violation of a holy God and the fact that He's given us this forgiveness. And so forgiveness for us should be a way of life. Make forgiveness a way of life. Second, see forgiveness as the pinnacle of godliness, the highest peak. The greatest thing you can do in terms of your godliness is to forgive others. If you think about it, forgiving people is that way in which you can most emulate God. The servant had an opportunity to emulate his master here. You ever thought about that? You're doing something that's As you forgive, you're doing something that's a a prime activity of God. When you forgive someone else, you're doing something that that God does all the time. Think of the billions of people and infinite sins that He has forgiven. And you get now to emulate God. You get to be godly. Now, here in this passage, again, the context is the church. 
A group of people who have formally and publicly committed to one another. They have sworn allegiance to God publicly and joined this group of people who have covenant together, sworn to live together and to encourage one another. There's a jurisdiction to this discipline, right? This church discipline. We don't discipline people that are not Christians. We don't discipline even Christians who are outside the church. You, you might be able to take some of these principles and apply it to other Christian relationships. But here, again, since Jesus limits this to uh, those who are in the church. This passage, Matthew 18, is about church discipline, folks inside a local congregation. Again, it's not to say we can't glean truths that are, can be applied to other relationships, but Jesus is not talking about those relationships specifically here. So this is the context. The context of forgiveness here is a forgiveness that's offered and delivered to sinning, then repentant fellow church members. And it's this forgiveness envisioned between members is a miniature presentation or a miniature replication of the gospel. Right? You have, you have sin and conviction of sin. Then you have someone coming and confronting that sin. Then you have repentance. Then you have forgiveness. This is what happens in salvation, right? And this ought to be repeating itself. This story ought to be repeating itself over and over in the relationships inside a local church, the story of the gospel, sin, confrontation, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. When we talk about forgiveness among Christians, it should contain these elements. It should be this gospel message, and it's, it's incomplete or it's corrupted if it's not this entire gospel message. When we fail in one or more of these areas, then we fail to replicate the gospel, and we usually pay for it. I've noticed that every problem between humans, but in specific against uh, between Christians, can be summarized. There's either a lack of repentance or a lack of forgiveness, usually both. Every problem that you and your wife have or you and your husband have or your children have among one another, you, you, the problems you have among, uh, with other Christians, it can be summarized by saying there's either a lack of repentance or a lack of forgiveness. And the objective is, is for both parties to come to a point where there is repentance and there is forgiveness, full and free forgiveness. And this is the goal of church discipline. The, the goal of church discipline is not to get people to leave your church. The goal is to find reconciliation, to find pathways of repentance and forgiveness and to replicate the gospel message in this, this relational way. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the objective. So Peter has... In his mind, a question, what if a person who's sinned comes to you and they say they're repenting, but they keep on stumbling and they stumble again and they stumble again? Surely there's a point where enough is enough, even though that person wants to repent. Surely there's a point where you say, ah, I'm done with you. And Jesus essentially answers, thank God he doesn't treat you that way. You keep on sinning. You fail in the same areas over and over and over and over and over again. And yet God forgives you every time. You come to him repentant. You're broken for that sin. You hate that sin. You don't want it to. Even if it's a snare for you and you do it again and again, God continues to forgive you. Now, why don't you offer that forgiveness to other Peter, all the other disciples, including us today? Why don't we offer that same forgiveness to others? Now, this gospel forgiveness is the ideal. 
It's the kind of forgiveness, particularly in the church, that we're aiming for, especially in this process. We're aiming for this kind of reconciliation and forgiveness and gospel message. That's what we're looking for. And when this happens, we are perhaps more godly than we are in any other moment, in any other action. The pinnacle of godliness. Now, I need to pause here and make a comment or two. Many wonderful people, preachers, counselors, folks I know and trust, many people I know say that this forgiveness, this full-orbed gospel forgiveness is the only kind of forgiveness that we see in the Bible. In this process of sin, confrontation, repentance, then and only then should we grant forgiveness. And, and, and people hold this position, I think, for, for very good reasons. God does not forgive people who are not repentant, Right? God doesn't just forgive the whole human race and bring everybody to heaven. No, there, there must be brokenness for sin. There must be faith in Christ and then repentance and then the enjoyment of God's forgiveness. We agree with this. We teach this. This is called the doctrine of exclusivity, that Jesus is the only way and trusting in Jesus and repenting of our sin. In fact, Jesus' whole message early in his ministry was repent, right? It was summarized by the gospel writers with that one word, repent, and experience the forgiveness of God. So many people I know, many people I love and trust believe that we are not permitted to use this word forgive or forgiveness. We are not required to forgive people who are not repentant. If it's not this full-orbed biblical gospel presentation where there is sin and confrontation and conviction of sin and then repentance and forgiveness, we do not we're not required to forgive, and there is a sense in which this is indeed true. This is a very common view on how we use these words, forgive or forgiveness. I think another valid concern in terms of forgiveness is if you just forgive everybody willy-nilly and you don't uh, look for repentance or ask for repentance, then essentially you're saying, oh, that sin is no big deal, let's just sweep it under the rug. And and a church doesn't want to get in a position where it just constantly sweeps sin under the rug and, and, and there's no dealing, proper dealing with sin where there is indeed repentance. Again, this is the context of believers and united in a local church. And I do think that this is the objective when it comes to church discipline. However, though that is the primary context of this passage, and it is indeed the objective when it comes to this situation of sin inside the church... I do believe the Bible teaches a secondary idea, it's, more, it's here, but it's more pronounced elsewhere, that there is a second type of forgiveness that even God Himself displays. This is not the full sense of sin and confrontation or conviction of sin and then repentance and forgiveness. It is a more generic or broad offer of forgiveness. And I believe you can see this in the Bible, particularly when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Now, if you agree with me, you're in good company. John Calvin actually taught this. There are two types of forgiveness, divine forgiveness in the Bible. The, the one is that full-orbed sense of reconciliation, eternal life, and that full-orbed sense of gospel forgiveness. And this ought to be what you pursue in the church body, particularly when it comes to church discipline. However, there is another kind of forgiveness, Calvin says, that you see in the Scripture, he says this in his Institutes, there's a kind of forgiveness that is simply you purging from your life, cleansing your heart of all malice and hatred and demand. It's getting out of your life any reluctance to forgive those 
who've hurt you. Again, I think this is the best explanation for when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Many people there weren't repentant and never would be repentant. And so I think what Jesus is talking about there is the the desire or the offer, the gracious, kind mercy, the, the offer of forgiveness. And he's using that word forgive to describe that author. And I believe this attitude is absolutely vital for a Christian's life. Why? Because most people who hurt you will never repent. If you're over age 15, you know that. You know, I have been in ministry for 25 years, and I've pastored several churches. Nobody, nobody has ever called me from an old church and said, Pastor John, you know, way back then I did this to you. I repent of that. I'm so sorry. No one's ever called me into that. It just rarely happens. People rarely ask for forgiveness. People rarely repent, especially when you go outside of the church into the secular world. People are not going to be asking, repenting of their sin and asking for forgiveness unless God has done something great in their lives in terms of salvation. And so when you read Jesus talking about forgiveness, he's Yes, I think especially when it comes to this sense in terms of church discipline inside the body of Christ, inside a group of people who have proclaimed they are believers in Christ and understand the gospel, yes, you pursue that gospel full-orbed sense of forgiveness. I do think there is room in your life to harbor another sense of forgiveness that says, I will not have malice in my heart. I will not bear in my heart anger towards anyone. I will leave God to justice and judgment. And in that sense, I forgive that person. I've released that person. They're not in the prison of my heart until they do what I want them to do. I've heard Christians say, you don't have to forgive anyone if they don't repent. Now, again, when we're talking about full orb forgiveness in the church of discipline, I understand that as a legal transaction in a sense. But you never hear Jesus say stuff like that. You don't have to forgive anybody. It's not Jesus' attitude towards others. People say, you can withhold forgiveness. You don't think they're repentant enough. Again, words and language and attitude that I don't see in Christ when he talks about forgiveness. So I believe there is a a second type of forgiveness, a, a, a way in which you replicate God's activity in terms of offering forgiveness, in terms of having an attitude of mercy and kindness and not cherishing in your heart malice and frustration. And I think it's okay to use that word forgive or forgiveness for that action. You may even have the opportunity to explain to the person who is not repentant, friend, I forgive you, meaning I do not harbor any ill will against you. I do not have malice towards you. That's not to say you're forgiven in the sense of a gospel forgiveness and you've repented of your sin and turned away from it, but in the sense that I have no bad feelings, I do not, I'm not angry with you, and I'm ready, standing ready to offer that full orb forgiveness, I'm ready, and I forgive you in that sense. I've met a number of Christians who hold on to bitterness, grudges, anger, malice, and it's all under this idea, well, I don't have to forgive them because they've not repented. Well, even if you disagree with me about using the word, like I, John Eliff and John Calvin use it, even if you disagree with us about that, you know that those attitudes are wrong. 
So even if you take the other theological position and say you can't use the word forgive to talk about this second kind of forgiveness, even if you disagree with that, you still have to release people in your heart. You still are required to not hold a grudge, to not show uh, maliciousness towards people, to not be angry and bitter towards people. This is a requirement from God Himself. Also, let me say this. Don't forget the Bible does not say this. The Bible does not say it's God's anger and refusal to forgive that leads people to repentance. What does it say? It's God's kindness that leads to forgiveness. This is the kind of attitude we ought to show even people who are not repentant. A kindness, a warmth, a love. We're to demonstrate this to them. Even if they've been removed away from the church, even if you're not supposed to be around them, there is to be an attitude that if ever that person would be willing, you have already forgiven in your heart and you're willing to make the transaction complete with that full orb forgiveness and bring them back in. All right, let's move on. Final observation I want to make. I'm going to make it very, very brief because the time is short and we're taking the Lord's Supper today. C, consider your need of others' forgiveness. Consider your need of others' forgiveness. Throughout this passage, there's this overarching idea. These are both servants in need of forgiveness. They both need to be forgiven of a debt, not only from the king, from, from one another. And that's the idea here of Peter's question. So I think a, a final sort of brief lesson we can learn from this in terms of fostering the heart of forgiveness is, is living with the idea that, oh yeah, I need to be forgiven of stuff all the time. By the way, I do. Just ask my wife. She has to have an attitude of forgiveness toward me all the time, and I know it. If you're not quick to forgive, if you're angry, if you hold grudges toward others, guess what? Other people are going to have the same attitude towards you when you fail, when you sin. They're going to give you that same scrutiny, and eventually you'll receive less and less of others' forgiveness. They're going to be tighter and tighter against you because you're so pent up and unforgiving and angry. People build this up over the years. They grow angry with others. Others grow angry with them, and it's just this horrible downward spiral. And by the end of their lives, their face looks all deranged and angry and mad, and they die an angry, bitter person. You know people like this. You come across people like, you don't want to be that kind of person. I have done funerals of a number of, number of people who are like that. You know how many people come to their funeral? Only those who have to. I've done funerals where there's only one or two family members and the whole room is empty. You want to live like that? No, you live your life knowing I need forgiveness and I need to offer forgiveness. This idea of forgiveness, I, I, I just need that and because I need it, I'm going to offer it all the time. I'm going to have this kind of peace towards one another. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, clothe yourself with humility. Part of humility is knowing you get things wrong. You sin. You hurt others. Even when you're not meaning to, you hurt others. And you need forgiveness. And you're willing to offer forgiveness. You cherish that, that thought. All right, let's pray that God would grant us this attitude of forgiveness. And then we're going to observe communion where we celebrate the forgiveness that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth 
of Christ's forgiveness. We pray, dear God, that we would constantly and consistently offer that forgiveness to others so that it becomes a way of life for us, so that we are known by the fact that we are kind, forgiving, peaceful people. I pray especially when it comes to the more formal transaction of church discipline, when these things begin to happen, that those of us who are sinning will be ready to repent, and those of us who are to be doing the forgiving will be ready to forgive. And the gospel message is replicated among us over and over again. But Lord, I even pray for that second kind. I see it as a second kind of forgiveness, simply the idea that we foster the willingness to, 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 give, to offer forgiveness, the willingness to push out any kind of malice or spite or hatred or frustration or grudges against people. Lord, may we forgive people in that way as well. May we be like you in that way. So Lord, bless us as we do this. Bless us as we seek to be more and more like Christ and seek to do what he commands us here, and that is to forgive one another as you have forgiven us. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.